you remember you and um, uh, Dr. Lee and Melvin uh, Tucker and myself were at your house in Pittsburgh uh, working on the uh, Prevention of Officer Involved Deaths book. Do you recall? Oh, yeah, no, I remember, yeah. Before we get into your book, I just wanted to ask you this. Bobby Kennedy and JFK were both killed, in my opinion, in the same manner, in that if you're looking at a serial killer and you're looking at a serial killer who has a MO or a modus operandi, uh, you would say that um, uh, the Kennedy assassination, Bobby and, John, and Jack, are extremely similar. Both shot uh, using the technique of uh, misdirection, uh, both in the light of day on camera in a very public event, um, almost say a terrorist attack in a way to, for the shock and awe value. Uh, are you of the opinion that, that the assassination of John and Bobby were perpetrated by the same entity? I believe they were perpetrated uh, by uh, yeah, kinds of people um, uh, with that uh, socio-political um, objective um, and uh, um, plan in mind. Yes, I do believe um, there is now uh, whether they knew each other or not. Uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to stress from the uh, you know, JFK who would have been able to manipulate as much as they did with the people uh, just locally there at the Ambassador Hotel with Bobby Kennedy Tigator. But I do think the uh, socio-political agenda uh, was uh, the same with the people, the same kind of mentality. Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. Scott Roder is a crime scene reconstruction expert, having traveled the world investigating countless murders. You are here because you are interested in the truth. Buckle up and let's take a ride. On November 22, 1963, our guest was 32 years old and just getting his career in legal medicine off the ground in his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He attained a medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in 1956, law degrees from the University of Pittsburgh in 1962, and the University of Maryland in the same year. A license, uh, license to practice law in the state of Pennsylvania, was a member of the state bar there, as well as the American Bar Association. A partner at one of the city's leading law firms, a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Science, the president of the American College of Legal Medicine, a U.S. Air Force veteran, associate pathologist at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, and served as a captain in the United States Air Force Medical Crew, um, and so much more, just at the age of 32 years old. Since then, uh, he has gone on to perform over 25,000 autopsies, and over 40,000 case consultations, including famous cases like John Benny Ramsey, Sharon Tate, Anna Nicole Smith, Vincent Foster, and many more. He has authored many books and many scientific papers. Uh, our next guest is on the Mount Rushmore 
of forensic science heroes right next to Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Edwin Lacard, and of course, Dr. Sherlock Holmes. Our guest is Dr. Cyril Weck. Cyril, thank you so much for coming on the show and having a chat with me today. Thank you for having invited me. It's kind of a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Um, now, uh, Doctor, uh, you've authored yet another book, uh, this one called The World's Greatest Murder Mystery regarding none other than the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I have so many questions to ask, but I'm going to ask this first question just to get it off my chest. Are the Dallas Cowboys really the one to blame here? Uh, the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, just seriously, uh, uh, I had to throw in one little joke because this is kind of a depressing subject uh, from the standpoint of being an American citizen. Uh, and now, Dr. Mark, you've you are simply the authority on the assassination of JFK, having done your conducted your investigation for you know 60, 59 years now. Why should people, the millennials out there, the 15-year-olds to the to the to the 50-year-olds, people who were born after the assassination of JFK, why should they care about this, Dr. Weck? That's a very good question. And I've uh, just been invited by um, a gentleman who is writing a book on that to write it forward for it. Very important. And uh, uh, people ask me that, and people wonder, uh, including, I guess, some of my friends uh, and so on, why uh, I've continued to uh, devote so much time and effort and energy to this matter. Because when you have um, the assassination of a president, broad daylight, one of the largest cities in the country, and you have then overthrown the government, you have effectuated a coup d'etat in America. To allow that to happen, and to allow the cover-up that has continued now for almost uh, six decades is absolutely unacceptable. And it is anathema to the basic principles of our American society, our political beliefs, the foundations upon which our country was created and, and hopefully will exist for a long time. Uh, because if you allow something like that to just be forgotten, then you are not doing what is required in order to preserve the uh, basic concepts of democracy, of an honest, open society. Uh, you have to realize what is involved here, the cover-up by governmental agencies, cover-up by major news media, all of them in this country, uh, think about that. I find that so offensive, it is difficult even for me uh, to, to articulate it and, and not get angry. It can easily go down the rabbit hole of, of, of being so sad and so, um, I guess, uh, disappointed that the American dream is really just a dream. Now, 
Dwight D. Eisenhower said, the only way to defend ourselves against tyranny by our own government is to have an supremely informed public and beware of the military industrial complex. Uh, in that famous speech, I feel, and I'm curious of your opinion, is the direct dumbing down of the American public by the distraction of the circus of what the media has become since 1963, a direct result in keeping, uh, or, or should I say not a direct result, is a direct effort by the powers that be to keep America uninformed for the reasons just like this. Well, the news media uh, obviously bought into it. I, I can't believe for one second that people uh, 50 uh, nine years ago at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and uh, the major magazines and uh, then television, NBC, CBS, ABC, that's what we had at that time, that they were all so stupid to have believed that Lee Harvey Oswald was a sole assassin in this matter. They weren't imbeciles. They reviewed everything and so on. Uh, they work closely then with the government. They really do. And uh, things have changed somewhat uh, post Watergate, post Vietnam War, in terms of uh, not blindly accepting and uh, swallowing um, without hesitation everything that the government tells you, uh, but it still exists. And by at that time in 1963, uh, pretty much whatever the government put out there, that was accepted. Well, and that's because there was this amazing sense of patriotism, of American pride. Of course, 1963 puts us directly in the middle of the Cold War. And for all of the young people out there, and we have many, many thousands of listeners that are under the age of 40, Dr. Weck. Um, and uh, I don't think that those people can understand the, uh, the, the effects of the Cold I still, as a young child, uh, remember the effects of the Cold War in the early 70s when I was going to school at St. Angela Marici uh, Primary, uh, that we would have drills uh, 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 for a nuclear war uh, where we would all run into the basement when we heard the nuclear bomb drill sound and put our heads between our legs and hide under desks for about 20 minutes. And we did this about once a month. Uh, I think it was around the year 1975 to 1977, something like that. People here in, in today's world, they don't know anything about that, but there was this sense of rally around our country, rally around America, rally around freedom, communism is bad, uh, to the point where um, it, it was just a fear-based patriotism. Yes, uh, you're right. And uh, while uh, Senator McCarthy took it too far to the extreme, but that kind of mentality uh, certainly uh, did exist. And uh, that's important too as we talk about the JFK assassination, because one of the things that he had set out to do um, 
military industrial uh, complex of mentality was a cooling down of the Cold War, a warming up of the, of the, of the Cold War, um, reaching out to, to Khrushchev and, and so on. And while I'm not suggesting there would have been, uh, you know, a, a compound mentality, ranchers and sheepmen dancing around the campfire, and let's all be friends, <laughs> it's been something significantly uh, better than what uh, we were dealing with at that time. And I'm going to save I'm going to save this question until the end, but I want it to percolate a little bit. Is it possible that Kennedy reached out to Khrushchev because of a common fear of something and wanted to collaborate with Khrushchev? Of course, a common fear of nuclear war. I mean, uh, but there was other common threats that possibly Kennedy was uh, talking to Khrushchev about? Well, yes. I, I think that um, they came to realize the dangers of nuclear war, and that's why the Russians backed off from Cuba following the Bay of Pigs debacle. And, uh, and remember, China was beginning to emerge then. Uh, Mao Zedong and Chiu Enlai, after World War II, uh, had uh, banished uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, to uh, Fort Mostov, and now called Taiwan. And uh, they were growing to be, and have become uh, this great power. And, uh, you know, arguably greater power than us. The population, the size, the mentality, the work ethic, things that you can do uh, in a totalitarian society that we can't do in a uh, democracy. Um, uh, you know, it reminds me, Winston Churchill talking about government and so on, made a one of his many, many, many observations of brilliance. Um, um, democracy is a terrible form of government. The only problem is there is nothing that is uh, an acceptable alternative. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, so I was working, uh, I just got hired recently on a, on a case in Australia, actually a couple of cases in Australia, and, uh, and I, I wasn't all that keen to this particular idea, but uh, Australia still bends a knee to the crown of England. And uh, matter of fact, in all of their legal proceedings, it's called the crown versus, you know, the defendant. And when I was preparing for uh, my reconstruction on the case, uh, I realized, well, they're not, uh, they don't have the same legal system as us. And when I worked on the Oscar Pistorius case and was in South Africa for that time in 2014, I realized that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the legal system in, in uh, South Africa is not as good as the United States. And then I work on all these cases here in America and I realize our system isn't perfect either, but it's the best one we have. By the way, I think the story is, is up for possible uh, parole, right? Is that, uh, That's right. Yeah, he is. Uh, a matter of fact, I'm uh, planning uh, to travel back down to South Africa to uh, possibly do a face-to-face -face interview with Oscar. But anyway, let me get back to the facts and the meat and potatoes about this case. And let me throw some facts out at you, Doctor. Um, uh, these are facts. 
Just after the shots rang out that day in 1963, almost 59 years ago, uh, a large group of onlookers immediately ran up towards the grassy knoll instinctively because that's where they were physically reacting from where the shots came from. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, so all of these people, were well, they all imbeciles. They all uh, have some auditory uh, defect uh, uh, leading to, uh, they ran toward the grassy you knoll. Know? Right, I mean, and that is human behavior. I mean, that is incontrovertible evidence that was just absolutely ignored. Before we go on to the next fact, this is a good point. Correlate that with something that most people don't even know about, and that is that one of the uh, uh, police officers riding uh, behind Kennedy's car uh, had uh, inadvertently left his uh, motorcycle radio leader in a position of transmitting uh, instead of just receiving. And that transmission was recorded, and that transmission was subsequently studied by the foremost audio experts in the, in the country, both Baranek and Newman, and by Weiss and Kanazi, Ashkenazi, New York, and um, they both came to the same conclusion that the Four shots, um, definitely, and that, that that's from the front as well as from the rear. So correlate that with all of those hundreds of people rushing to the grassy knoll. There were other onlookers that immediately pointed toward not the fifth floor of the book depository, but the roof. And there, and there are witnesses that saw somebody on the roof of the book depository. That could not have been Oswald on the roof. Right. Okay. Another fact. The stretcher bullet never struck Kennedy. Fact. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think the stretcher bullet is a plant. Yeah. So, it, <laughs> so yeah. I and, and the stretcher bullet, and I got this from your section in your book called the stretcher bullet section, starting on page 46, which I absolutely loved. And it was so timely because I had just listened to a podcast with Joe Rogan. And uh, Joe Rogan uh, is an avid uh, hunter and marksman. I'm an avid uh, gun uh, uh, owner and user, primarily not for fun, but I use the guns for for my experimental science projects for uh, particularly officer-involved shooting cases, which I do very many. And I'm familiar with the modern 223 rounds and, and, and the flowering effect of these bullets and, and how they're intended to operate. And um, uh, sure, that bullet was fired, but I'm going to argue that that bullet was fired into possibly gelatin or, or a bale of hay. Or, or something to that effect, because there's no way that that bullet could have passed through two bodies and be in such perfect condition. I agree completely. Um, the uh, most valued single piece of um, materials that I have in my JFK collection, one single piece, is a picture that was made by the government, incredibly, that people aren't aware of, 
I show it every time I speak. I'm sorry we can't show it while we are talking here today. Well, maybe if you send it to me in a picture, I could put it on the web page for this episode and we could share it to everybody. All right, I'll try to do that then. Uh, they got the, uh, another Malik de Partano, the alleged murder weapon, this piece of junk, bolt action, non automatic carbine, and the same ammunition, 6.5 millimeter copy jacket with lead core bullets. And they fired first into cotton wiring. What would a bullet look like? Uh, just striking nothing, just having been fired. Then they fired, and who knows how many times they did it, not just once, of course, probably dozens of times, through goat carcasses, breaking one whip of a goat mm-hmm. to see what it looked like. And then they got human cadavers, um, shit dozens of times, and fired to uh, break a radius, one of the two long bones from the elbow to the wrist. Um, both of those bones um, were broken commonly, the radius and the right rib. Uh, right fifth rib, um, and that picture shows the significant deformity of a bullet that broke just the rib and a goat. The significant deformity, the classical peeling back effect of a bullet that strikes a large bone like a radius um, in a six foot four big bone section like John Conway, and then in that same picture you have at the other end of the photo, uh, Commission Exhibit 399, um, the structure bullet, the hero of the so-called bullet theory, which Mark Lane and I and others have labeled as the magic bullet theory, it is their, their own evidence. You talk about getting away with murder, mm-hmm. no, no pun intended. <laughs> they conducted an experiment, and it's says out there. Now, you're telling me that an editor of the New York Times can't look at that and see, you don't have to be a forensic pathologist or a ballistic expert. There's no expertise required. Here's the picture. And that, and that right there shows the complicitness of the media buying the Warren Commission's story. Now, in preparation for this interview, I went back and I watched all of the archival footage from CBS uh, it's all strung together live. You can Everybody can go out there and get it on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. Uh, and it shows all of the original news footage from Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite um, and, and all those people live at the scene interviewing uh, the police and, and, and just buying the story uh, from the Warren Commission hand to mouth without asking any questions. And so, of course, the media is complicit on that. But here is another question I have for you. And you may may or may not feel comfortable asking it, but I'm here to ask real questions, Dr. Weck, not just pick around the edges. And both being professionals in the legal uh, world, I want to ask you this. How disappointed are you in Dr. Baden and Dr. and, and Mr. Arlen Specter in propagating this bullshit? Well, I'm very disappointed, and uh, yeah, Michael Bond uh, is a good friend and respected colleague, uh, and uh, you know, I, every now and then, will pass on stuff to, to Dr. Bond and ask him to uh, review it, mm-hmm. and, uh, referring to Oliver Stone as a two-hour program that was just released, um, and in February, it'll be a four-hour documentary, uh, 
in which they interview all these people and so on. You might keep that in mind. And by the way, a, a program that was picked up by countries all over Europe and Asia, but which American television refused to pick up. And finally, I think Netflix will do it February of next year. Mm. I mean, there is this condensed to our version. There's a difficult uh, through Oliver Stone. So, oh, and by the way, just to jump in there, you actually got Oliver Stone to write the preface for this book, what a great grab! I'm, I'm, I'm just so in awe. One, in my respect for you and your career. Like I said, you're on the Mount Rushmore, and on the movie side of the world, Oliver Stone's right there with me. He got me so excited back in 2019 when he put out a, I think it was like a 16-hour documentary called, uh, and I'm just gonna loosely remember it, but but it was called something about. Uh, the American history they didn't teach you in school, something to that effect, the real American history. Uh, and it was such a nerd deep dive into American history starting around, um, you know, uh, the Great Depression and going all the way up through the Kennedy assassination and through 9-11 and all that stuff. Uh, of course, he directed and wrote the JFK movie starring uh, Kevin Costner, which if you look back at that movie historically... He got a lot of that right, didn't he, Doctor? He sure did. You know, I was a technical consultant to Oliver Stone on that movie. I went down to New Orleans where they were filming, and I'm the person that is responsible for that wonderful scene, which I have been using um, many times and was not in, had not been included in uh, his uh, presentation with Kevin Costner playing the role of New uh, Orleans Parish. District Attorney from Garrison, uh, Kevin Costner, and uh, then demonstrates the trajectory of the uh, bullet, the single bullet theory, the absurd, unbelievable trajectory, the impossible uh, vertical, horizontal direction. Um, the magic bullet, right? <laughs> we established a warm relationship, and we've been friends ever since. We've had this friend a couple of times for big JFK programs that were conducted, and uh, I was delighted then to be interviewed by Oliver Stone in this uh, uh, documentary that I have referred to, which will be available in February. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and then a forward by him is very meaningful. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw uh, Oliver Stone, uh, just a real quick uh, little aside on him for all the uh, people here out there that that need to be an aficionado on Oliver Stone movies, uh, is Oliver Stone once went to Russia and sat down for days with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he, he shared Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I, I thought that was just a magical piece of television documentary to get Vladimir Putin's reaction to Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film uh, about uh, nuclear war, a comedy starring Peter Sellers and, and a lot of other fantastic actors. Um, but the balls on him to sit down with Vladimir Putin and show him Dr. Strangelove, that's exactly what I would have done. What would you have asked Vladimir Putin, Dr. Weck? <laughs> Um, that indeed was uh, very, very, um, how uh, shall I say, uh, uh, challenging, aggressive, um, uh, 
there's no for Oliver Stone. But that's the kind of a guy he is. I think Oliver Stone is a great, great patriotic American. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so are you, Dr. Weck. And it is my continued honor to be talking with you. Um, let's get back into a couple more facts on the JFK assassination. And one of the things that I think is so critical is the evidence, and I'm talking about just the objective evidence, doctor. The evidence suggests that Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill Officer J.D. Tippett in Dallas, Texas. Would you agree that there is not enough evidence to get an indictment with a grand jury against Lee Harvey Oswald in the death of J.D. Tippett? Yes, I would agree. Uh, that has always remained a puzzle to me and many of my colleagues who are Warren Commission critic researchers. Uh, it's uh, very, uh, very questionable as to whether or not Oswald shot Tippett. And if he did, if he did, he did it uh, uh, in a defensive measure because he realized that Tippett, he would have realized that Tippett was there to kill him. <laughs> That's uh, that where Tippett was not stationed anywhere in that area. Um, and uh, he winds up driving supposedly in a very hasty fashion uh, to go and help out if he could. Uh, with everything that was developing following the assassination and uh, driving fast. And he, but he looks out the window and dying if he doesn't say, I'll be damned. That's, that's the guy that's going. <laughs> just got five foot nine, average bill, just walking quietly down the street, uh, dressed uh, quite uh, uh, simply and so on. How did Tippett come to know that that was Oswald? So I say Oswald not have shot him, but if he did, it would set up uh, from the beginning uh, for Tippett uh, to have accomplished uh, what uh, was not was not achieved, namely getting rid of Oswald. And well, what about this though? In the Warren Commission's uh, investigation, they rely heavily on the testimony of a woman who uh, said she saw um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, shoot J.D. Tippett. Uh, but yet they totally ignore the, uh, what I believe to be the um, uh, 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 very specific testimony of Aquila Clemens, as you state in your book and page 52, uh, regarding uh, the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, which is another fantastic chapter, uh, that uh, Aquila Clemens saw two men involved in the murder of J Officer J.D. Tippett. One guy was short uh, and heavy, and the other guy was tall and thin, wearing khaki pants and a white shirt. Uh, and then Clemens, Clemens added that once Tippett was on the ground, the shooter waved off the other man. They left the scene in opposite directions. She told Lane she was soon visited by a man who didn't give his name but carried a handgun. And he told her that she should not repeat her story to others. She might get hurt. 
As, I mean, that is mind-blowing to me, Doctor. Yes, I agree. And, but yet they rely on this Helen Markham to be the eyewitness of the story. Throughout the Warren Commission investigation, witnesses that were called and witnesses that were not called and other witnesses who were interrogated in a very abbreviated, a, a sculpted fashion to get from them only that which uh, our inspector and others wanted to have on the record. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and, and we, we can go back to just simply the O.J. Simpson case uh, where our colleague, uh, Dr. Henry Lee, was able to testify that the, the, the uh, bloody glove should never have been entered into evidence uh, because it was mishandled with regard to the chain of custody as well as many other things. Now, the chain of custody in the evidence regarding the death of John F. Kennedy spoiled from the very beginning. They did not set up a perimeter. They did not clear the area. They did not secure the crime scene. They had ungloved, uneducated uh, police officers. I'm not saying police officers are uneducated, but they weren't scientists. They weren't crime scene experts. Uh, collect hold, handle, and put on public display the rifle uh, that they allegedly found so conveniently uh, 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 right next to three shell casings <laughs> um, in the uh, sniper's nest, allegedly on the fifth floor of the book depository, holding the weapon up for the news media without gloves. Uh, just ridiculous. Is this before the age of modern science, Dr. Weck? I, I do believe that uh, uh, appropriate uh, scientific measures had been somewhat universal in murder cases standard throughout the United States by 1963. Why uh, or what is your criticism or comments on the casual nature of the handling of not only the evidence of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but the handling of the evidence of J.D. Tibbet? There were several people who had touched, manipulated the gun, the weapon, and all kinds of things in uh, the officer's squad car before police ever arrived. Uh, what, what kind of uh, half-hearted, uh, uh, foolish venture was the Dallas Police Department undertaking? And that leads me to the question, are the real culprits on the ground, people that should have been arrested that day, were in fact members of the Dallas Police Department. Well, I don't know if they were members of the Dallas Police Department, but I think all the things that you have pointed out um, were accomplished by a combination of um, a lack of uh, a training, a rush to judgment, and uh, manipulation by uh, superiors here and there. You put all of those together, and they accomplished what one would have thought would have been uh, impossible to achieve, and that is the cover-up, which we have talked about, that has continued for these 59 years. You had a combination of people uh, not involved, but not really doing a job, not being directed to do a proper job. Um, they brushed their judgment all the way up to including uh, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, who came out uh, officially on Monday, the 25th, 
unofficially already on Sunday the 24th, saying that the case was over, it had been solved, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin. And how much would you have been able to make hay in the courtroom regarding the uh, the Mauser rifle actually even being the weapon recovered in the book depository? Because uh, my understanding is uh, very soon after they put that weapon on display, there was another weapon that was then swapped out uh, to say that, uh, no, uh, we got it wrong. It was this gun. Yeah, that's right. It was originally identified by uh, a, uh, an experienced uh, officer, as I recall. Um, what was the name? Seymour Weisberg. That's right, yeah. As, as a monitor, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, in, a, in a courtroom, which is where you and I, you know, made our bones, right? <laughs> Particularly you. Um, I'm still trying to make my bones, doctor. Um, I'm still paying my dues as they were, testifying in court on a regular basis. Matter of fact, this year I've testified uh, eight times in in court. That's right. It's been a it's been a busy year. So my question to you, since you know, yeah, everybody talks about the famous cases, the John Benet Ramseys and the Kennedys and all that stuff, but you made your bones in those twenty thousand autopsies, in those forty thousand case consults testifying in the courtroom under the color of American jurisprudence and legal, medical, uh, uh, scientific, uh, reductive sciences, reductive science, experimentalism, the backbone of, um, of the forensic science uh, development, which in no short part is uh, due to your contributions that we're sitting here at this time with our advanced forensic science, and our understanding of it uh, is in the court of law, which is where we live, is there any way in the world that Lee Harvey Oswald could have been convicted of the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Would he, would any prosecutor have had a chance to get a guilty conviction on him if this evidence that we know today was able to be examined by somebody like you and then talk to a jury. What's the chances? I believe that a skilled attorney uh, like Edward Bennett Williams, who was the top guy at that time, for example, and, and others uh, whom I worked with on cases as a young man, I believe that what we have been discussing and so much more that we won't have time to get into, I hope people will be interested enough to try to uh, read about this in my uh, in my book, which is uh, available now. You can place the order directly through McFarland Publishing or another week or so it will be available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And I'm going to have a link on the website uh, for this episode where you can buy uh, Dr. Weck's book, uh, The Greatest Murder Mystery, uh, and I am going to urge everybody to buy this book. I am going to be. Is there a hard cop, uh, a hardbound copy available, Doctor? Uh, I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it'll be out there soon. Oh, I really want to get a hard copy and buy it for all of my friends in the forensic science community because I'm telling you out there, people, you need to get this book uh, because the like like Dwight D. Eisenhower said. 
um, it's about an informed public. That's how we keep this republic is by having an informed public. And here on Crime Scene Time Machine, which is so fitting that we are going back in time again to 1963 and discussing with a world-famous forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Weck, about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Dr. Weck, Ruth Payne and her husband uh, were either CIA agents or co-opted CIA operatives of some sort, uh, and they were the landlords uh, of Marina and Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, she had said under the, to the Warren Commission that she became friends with Marina because of her interest in learning Russian, but she was already fluent in Russian. Um, and she was put forward as a very prominent character uh, with regard to uh, her uh, uh, familiarity with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, do you find her to just be this house mistress, just happened to, to, to be involved, or is there more to that story, Doctor? I, I, I agree with you. The CIA, you know, these, these are not people who were necessarily trained CIA operatives going back to their college or young adult days. But as you said, the word you just co-opted people who, you know, for one, one way or another, uh, here a promise of something beneficial, uh, here maybe a veiled threat, uh, here uh, an appeal to a super patriotism. Uh, and I think that's where the pains fitted in, like other people. And then they were used to tie another string around the box uh, containing the other Okay, here's another question I have for you, uh, and I want to burn through a few of these pretty fast because I want to be conscious of our time, but I have these questions, and I really, I really just really want to hear some more uh, of you giving me uh, this education, um, and here it is. On, in, on, uh, uh, at one o'clock, around one o'clock, two days uh, after uh, Kennedy was killed, uh, uh, Kennedy died uh, in operating room number one. Uh, and then two days later, at one o'clock, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was brought in after he was shot, and he was in operating room number two, as deference to uh, Mr. Kennedy being killed and, and dying just right next door. Um, the doctor that was performing life-saving measures on Lee Harvey Oswald was interrupted during this emergency surgery to take a phone call from somebody who said something very suspicious to him. Could you please tell the audience a little bit about that? I don't remember the details of that, but it is something very, very strange to uh, uh, interrupt someone <laughs> perform surgery and so on. Well, the, the important thing about this is the elimination of Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby. Uh, there's no way in the world, going back to a question that you posed a few minutes ago, uh, where if he had gone to trial, uh, would he ever have been convicted? And I think that he would not have been convicted because it didn't have a case. And what he had to say, what he would have had to say, too, about many other things, uh, and... and uh, his relationship possibly with the CIA is two and a half year 
uh, sojourn in Russia, uh, getting an honorable discharge from the Marines based on a cockamamie story about his mother's illness. Uh, there was no illness. <laughs> and, and, and during the Red Scare, Dr. Weck, is it possible that somebody could move to Russia, denounce their American citizenship, and then and then absolutely have no problem just being like, ah, I'm bored here, I think I need to go back to America, and then they're just going to stamp them, yep, come back in, no worries. That's not going to happen. No problem. I think he was given a substantial loan, married to the niece of a, of a high-ranking KGB official, a colonel, um, and uh, come back in, and it was amazing. He was never, at that time, interrogated extensively, interviewed by um, the uh, FBI and others. I went, I went to Russia for a professional program in 72 with uh, Henry Lee and uh, Michael Biden. When I came back, uh, FBI agents were in my office the very next day and spent a couple of hours with me. Guess what did I see and what did I do? Right. No one. And so to think that Oswald, over there for almost two and a half years, married to the niece of a high-ranking official, uh, and they weren't interested in talking with him and getting a complete debriefing. Oh, my God. The more you think about things and all the ramifications that the... The, the tentacles uh, from this, this stinking, decomposing body of the Warren Commission, uh, the more disgusted and angry you become. Let me, let me jump on this, and I'm, maybe this will refresh your recollection. Um, it, Dr. Crenshaw was doing the surgery on Lee Harvey Oswald, and, he, uh, and this is what you have in the book on page uh, 102. Oswald's... Uh, uh, when the pulse slowed, Perry made another scalpel incision, and this time exposing the patient's heart. The doctor who attempted in vain to massage President Kennedy's heart back to life was now performing the same task on JFK's alleged killer. But nothing worked. Not ventricular defibrillation, nor drugs injected um, uh, uh, right into the heart, unable to revive or save the now cyanotic Oswald was pronounced dead at 1.07 p.m. But prior to the, his actually dying, uh, the doctor received a phone call. He identified himself and heard the caller's deep Texas accent. This is President Lyndon B. Johnson, Dr. Crenshaw. How is the accused? He told the president uh, that Oswald was holding his own at the moment, but that his condition was uh, very serious. President Johnson commanded Dr. Crenshaw to give the lead surgeons an order that there should be a deathbed confession from Oswald that witnesses in the room would hear. Crenshaw went back into the surgical arena and delivered the word, Oswald died, there would be no deathbed confession. Is it appropriate for the vice president and the now president of the United States to interfere with a surgery to demand a deathbed confession? What is going on with this, doctor? Absolutely incredulous, absolutely unbelievable. Um, it, you know, this is something that not many people know about or have ever heard about. Thank you for mentioning it. Yes, I, it blew, I literally, when I read this in your book, I jumped out of my chair and I just couldn't believe that that could be true. 
Um, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, how would that play in a courtroom? Oh, it would be disgusting. I came to know Dr. Crenshaw. We developed a nice friendship or some programs together at a couple of different places. And that he always, always made it clear that uh, he uh, did not believe in the Warren Commission report. Okay, I have a couple of more questions for you here uh, that I want to really get in. Um, do you have any comments on Houston Congressman Albert Thomas and his behavior with Lyndon B. Johnson on Air Force One when he's being sworn in as president, standing next to the newly widowed Jacqueline Kennedy? The wink photograph. You can interpret that in different ways. Remember that, I mean, you, you say that it doesn't just show that uh, he was involved and uh, well, we did it, so to speak, and so on. But Brian Johnson was a pretty crude individual. Uh, he was an incredible politician, but he was a pretty crude individual. He'd go into the bathroom. Yeah, crude and rude, yeah. And have a bowel movement with the open door and people mm -hmm. out there, sitting on the United States, sitting there defecating. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting observation. Um, okay, um, let's get back into some more factual type stuff. Yeah. Here's a fact. Um, in 1947, Fred Chrisman uh, is a CIA agent involved in the recovery of an alleged UFO at Maury Island by the Puget Sound. Fred Chrisman turns up in 1963 as being one of the alleged hobos arrested as suspects in the shooting by the Dallas Police Department of John F. Kennedy. What's going on there? Incredible. Yeah, those uh, three hobos with uh, well-shot crews um, and uh, never, never taken in, interrogated and so on. What were they doing? Where were they coming from? Oh, my so much there. Uh, every, every string that you can pull on this case creates 20 more strings. Yeah, well, who, who, who could have pulled a string on it? It takes us back to the very beginning of our discussion, and that is, could only have been accomplished by uh, high-level officials um, uh, currently active or recently retired uh, a, a military to have accomplished all of that. Think of what that would have needed to be done. A phone call here, a message there. Uh, uh, nobody could have accomplished that except people uh, in those ranks. And then also Guy Bannister was involved in the Murray Lake incident in 1947 as well. And Guy Bannister, as we learned from Oliver Stone and from you, uh, was a handler of Lee Harvey Oswald out of New Orleans. Yeah, that's right. Um, where Oswald was supposedly distributing a fair fight for Cuban literature, and an address uh, that was inhabited by Guy Bannister and his uh, people and so on. Yeah, oh my God, there's so much here, Scott. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, two more questions for you, Doctor. Uh, I'm going to save my best question for last 
because we are at about 57 minutes and I, I promise to get you off here in an hour, although I could talk to you all day because I just enjoy this. I'm so exhilarated and energized by your knowledge, by your organization, by your story career. Um, it's such an honor. Um, all right, Dr. Weck, there are, are there any details in your investigation since uh, the release in 2017 uh, of additional uh, top secret declassified uh, but yet still redacted material put out? Uh, one of the pieces, one of the documents that I've found in my uh, investigation that uh, I find is extremely important is a, a memo called or now called the Burn memo where uh, the CIA or the FBI uh, writes a memo uh, saying Lancer, which is the CIA, which is the Secret Service name for John F. Kennedy, Lancer is inqu is inquiring uh, into our activities. This cannot be allowed. Uh, and it uh, is basically saying Kennedy's looking into our stuff. We can't allow this, and the memo is burned. Uh, it looks like it's a burned piece of paper. That's why it's called the burn memo. Do you, do you, did that memo or any other information that came out in 2017, uh, uh, did that help or augment your investigation? And then the follow-up to that is, oh, go ahead, go ahead and answer that one first. with the statement that Kennedy made to Senator Mike Mansfield following the Bay of Pigs debacle where he tore up a piece of paper uh, into many, many pieces, threw it into the air, and said, this is what I intend to do to the CIA. Keep that in mind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, Kennedy's speech that might have gotten him killed, uh, some people theorize, is the speech where he talks about um, there is no room in America for secret societies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so here's, uh, and I don't want to get too much into that, but here's my final question for you, Doctor. Where is John F. Kennedy's brain? I do not know. It has never been accounted for. Thank you for mentioning this. I was the one to release to the public that the brain was missing, that it had not it had been placed in formalin, a fix of the solution uh, properly after the autopsy and uh, went back uh, two weeks later uh, the pathologist who did the autopsy these two were comedians who had no experience in forensic pathology who had never done a gunshot autopsy they went back and they could see it in the report serial sections of the brain are not made in order to preserve the specimen preserve the specimen by whom? Jackie Kennedy's mantelpiece? Yeah. Very, thank you for touching upon that. And that was in August 24, 1972, page one story, New York Times, written by Fred Graham, President's Brain Missing. And it remains unaccounted for. And while some of the Warren Commission defenders and sycophants try to tell you, well, the Kennedys took it, they buried it. There is no documentation, no reference, no suggestion of that at all that the Kennedys ever took the brain. And isn't it a fact that if we had the brain to be examined by you, uh, uh, that that would definitively prove beyond any reasonable scientific doubt 
that the bullets came from the front. Absolutely. That's why the brain went missing. That's why I went missing. Um, And now my final uh, thought, and I'd love you to, to comment on this, is they killed the man in JFK, but they killed the idea when they killed Bobby. Are we living in a different America now in, yes. than we were before the Kennedys were killed, Dr. Weck? I, I, I strongly believe that the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Dr. Martin Luther King um, moved this country and the world into a different direction. And I strongly believe, and have anybody ever prove it, but if those people have remained alive and continued to espouse what they believe, with the followings that they had um, uh, politically with the Kennedys and uh, in a broader sense uh, with King and so on, that we were kind of on to have a different world today. Um, but and that's why they were eliminated, because that kind of world was not acceptable to the super patriots who believed that America was going to hell in a basket, and uh, they weren't going to sit back and let that happen. And 13 more years of the Kennedy, five of uh, Jack, uh, uh, eight years of Bobby Kennedy. They weren't going to let that happen. Well, Scott, I thank you very much. Marvelous interview. Uh, you're so well read. And um, uh, let us keep in touch. Absolutely. And, and, and Dr. Weck, I, I just want to thank you one more time for being here with me. And I would love to invite you back on at some point in the near future so that we can discuss the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Okay. All right. We'll do the best okay. Thank you so much, Doctor. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. All right. Be well. Okay, folks. That was a wonderful interview uh, with Dr. Cyril Weck forensic pathologist, one of the most uh, famous uh, scientists in American history, Uh, my colleague, uh, and uh, uh, what a wonderful guest. So uh, I hope you enjoy that, folks. Uh, Go to the Crime Scene Time Machine uh, webpage, and you'll get all the links and photographs of the things that we were talking about uh, here today. You'll get a link on how you can buy Dr. Weck's book, and uh, uh, look at some other fun things and stuff. Okay, guys, Whew. that was fun. Um, until next time, I'm Scott Roeder, and I love you, America. Oh, yeah.